there was a exercise of the carrier attack group 11 which includes the nimitz uh, the uss princeton which is a, a guided missile carrier the uss Louisville, which is a submarine and a number of other surface ships But then he had a visual, what he called these unknown objects in the air that he described as a tic-tac, an oval-shaped object, no wings, no obvious method of propulsion. And as he's approaching, the tic-tac turns its nose towards him. I said a federal court judge might or might not consider it reasonable that you can't find any information on any of five naval assets. But I said, I don't know that our congressman will find it reasonable. Welcome to UFO Radio International, investigative podcast show about UFO phenomena. And here is your host, Juliano Marinkovic. On that remarkable day of November 14, 2004, Nimitz Carrier Strike Group encountered something unknown and exceptional that shouldn't be there, but it was. For several days prior, the USS Princeton detected multiple anomalous objects operating in and around the vicinity of the Carrier Strike Group. Advanced, high-powered, 4 megawatts radar, AN SPY-1, detected those objects. That radar has ability to perform search, track and missile guidance functions simultaneously with the capability of over 100 targets. Two F-18s fighter jets from the VFA-41 Black Aces squadron were vectored towards the UFO. Commander of Black Aces David Fravor tried to chase it. This short summary represents the USS Nimitz UFO incident. Case received its prominence or notoriety back in October 11, 2017, on the web conference organized by rock star Tom DeLonge. However, I was exposed to this case two months prior, thanks to researcher Robert Powell. This is an excerpt from my interview with him, and this is what he told me about this case in an episode that I released back in August 2017. For the end, we can now go sort of out towards the future after we covered the past. Uh, what are your current plans? Uh, what's there for you now on the horizon? For the, uh, the future, um, we had done a report I did with a group of individuals um, and we named the group the Scientific Coalition for Ufology. So we hope to continue doing scientific investigations through that organization. And that organization is actually on the web. Uh, it's under www.explorescu.org. Um, and so we have uh, more cases that we'll probably put there once we complete. An investigation. Most of these investigations are pretty extensive. Uh, currently, I'm working on one. You may be familiar with it. It's uh, a case from November of 2004, and it involved two uh, F-18 Super Hornets uh, from the USS Nimitz. Uh, this was off the coast of San Diego, and these guys basically were scrambled by the USS Princeton, which was a missile frigate um, that had the state-of-the-art radar to an object that they had detected. And when the two pilots got there, what they saw, they described it basically as two white Tic Tacs. You know those little Tic Tacs you eat? They're oh, yeah. kind of an oval-shaped object, uh, no, no wings, no propulsion system, um, just there in the sky. So I, I've been doing a series of freedom of information requests on that to the Navy and to the Marines because there, there were uh, two ships and three uh, unique sets of aircraft that were involved in this incident. Um, so I'll probably publish that under the Scientific Coalition for Ufology once I complete it, which it may be another year before we're done with that investigation. 
Oh, that definitely looks like a really impressive case. So, ATA is about a year, right? Then you will have sort of a report. Yes, yes. I should, we should have a report on it next year, I would think. Um, oh, great. It, you know, once we're done with all the FOIAs and the appeals of the FOIAs. Great. Definitely looking forward to that. We could maybe do another show when it is out there because it's another aeronautical case. I'm also personally interested in those, especially when we have uh, radar detection. And uh, in your case, it seems it was a... Uh, so they, they had also visual, right? Right. They had visual and radar. It was detected first by the USS Princeton. Uh, then there was a visual... Uh, the the F-18 Super Hornets actually could not make uh, radar. They did not pick it up on the radar, but once they got in the vicinity, they made visual contact. And interestingly, there's a video that went out on the Internet, mm. uh, and it, as far as I can tell, it appears to be a legitimate video of the object by the F-18. Um, but... You know, we, we don't have enough specific information yet on that, on that video. On December 17th, 2017, New York Times has published an article that has became huge worldwide sensation. One day prior to that, digital version of that article was also published on the New York Times website. That article exposed Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which had a mandate to evaluate military UFO incidents. Back in January 2018, I was one of the few journalists who was able to speak with Luis Elizondo in an extended one-hour interview. Luis Elizondo was a former director of ATIP program, which also investigated USS Nimitz case. This is what Elizondo told me in an episode that I released in February 2018. Um, this is a case that until recently nobody admitted ever happened. Um, this was the Nimitz were doing their workups off the coast of California. It was in November 2004 that the event happened. I, I talked to four of the pilots, and we actually have the written written verification. So we, the, it was a clear morning off the coast of San Diego. Um, two F-18 Super Hornets, uh, commanded now that everybody knows by uh, Commander Fravor, who was a commander of, by the way, the most elite of the elite called the Black Aces. Um, if you ever had the privilege and honor to meet this guy, he is truly an American hero. And uh, he was leading, uh, leading this, the, the pack, if you will, of F-18s, the two F-18s. And then you had another F-18, uh, which I don't know if the identities of those pilots have come out yet, so I can't, I can't release those identities. But again, all trained observers and in charge of multi-million dollar weapon systems. And as they were doing the train-ups with uh, the Marine Corps, which were playing the, uh, the Red Force, they received a call uh, from the Princeton, and they were re-vectored to a new location. And, they, and as they were being re-vectored, um, the two F-18s were talking back and forth, wondering if maybe this was a drug interdiction or something like that, because apparently it was, it, was, it, was, it was live, it wasn't an exercise. And at one point, the Princeton asked the F-18s, asked both of them, what were their loadouts, what were their weapon loadouts? Now, keep in mind, they're training, so they shouldn't have any weapon loadouts. So they were surprised by that. Um, unless this was a real-world scenario, you wouldn't need weapons especially over the continental United States and, and our territorial waters. So that was strange. Um, so as they finally got to the place, um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the radar operators on the, on the uh, Princeton had informed Fravor and the other individuals that uh, they were been tracking these things over the last week. Um, many, many of these things, sometimes up to 20 of these things coming in out of 80,000 feet, dropping down to 20,000 feet, in some cases just 50 feet over the water, and then popping right back up. And uh, it's not that they were going to 80,000 feet and flying away. We didn't track them anymore after that. Um, and so they were maneuvering in a very odd way. And so as Commander Fravor and his folks uh, got over the target area, they noticed the water was perturbed and roiling in an otherwise very calm, steady sea, sea state, uh, very blue skies, um, excellent weather conditions, and the water was roiling, and as I looked down, they saw this very fast, what looked like a white tic-tac, flying um, very fast over the water. And so as uh, Commander Fravor tried to engage 
the target, the target began to outmaneuver Commander Fravor. By the way, in one of our most sophisticated aircraft we had at the time, um, this thing was actually towing with him. To the point when Commander Fravor finally tried to engage this thing directly, um, it took off, and within, he, he expresses it as a couple seconds, and this is backed up by the radar, it was completely gone. Um, so taking off in a, in a position, so it had initially orientated, it orientated itself towards Commander Fravor as if, as if guarding itself, and then as Commander Fravor came in, to get a closer look, it, it, it shot off. And more importantly here, not only did it fly off at several thousands upon thousands of miles an hour without a sonic boom or anything like that, no associated uh, signature, within a minute or two of them uh, collecting their thoughts and heading off to their next location, um, they were, Commander Fravor was informed that the object was now waiting for them at their next, uh, <laughs> at their next uh, plot location. So somehow... The object not only outmaneuvered both aircraft very easily, but also managed to know where the next location, their next point on, on the map that they were supposed to go to. Um, somehow, it, it, it knew that it was able. Maybe it exploited the the, the elect electronic systems on the aircraft, or who knows. But somehow, the object was waiting for them at their next merge plot, and that's a problem. So uh, they canceled their flight. They went back to the Nimitz. Um, and uh, at that point, some folks were uh, were were teasing them. Um, obviously, Commander Fravor and company were not happy about it. Um, they were concerned that this was a, a danger to them and their aircraft and the mission. And so, two more F-18s were launched uh, immediately after Fravor's folks had returned and recovered on the ship. And it was those two F-18s that actually took the footage of the of one of the videos that you see. Um, I, I can't answer precisely when an investigation was actually launched, a very comprehensive investigation. Um, but unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to give the, the precise time or by who did it. I believe that information may still belong to the government, so I have to be, I have to be cautious of that. But uh, an investigation was, in fact, um, executed. That is, that is correct. And that was an excerpt from my interview with uh, Luis Elizondo. And now I'm finally releasing my interview with researcher Robert Powell about the USS Nimitz incident that was recorded back in October 2017. Please bear in mind that this interview was done with the knowledge level that was available at that time. Obviously, we now know a lot more about this case. I can also say that I was doing multiple tasks behind the scenes during that period, and even I have been able to locate one pilot who was involved in the incident. I briefly spoke with him over the phone, and I'm not speaking here about David Fravor or Jim Slate. Anyway, I communicated with many parties behind the scenes, also, a close and private group of researchers was formed where we exchanged information and data that we gathered individually. I would definitely like to thank two exceptional researchers, Jeremy Corbell and Robert Powell, who have individually researched Nimitz case in the background and they have scooped the entire UFO community for more than a year. And that should be never forgotten and I think they are not receiving enough credit for that. So, coming soon, my archived interview with Robert Powell about the USS Nimitz case that we recorded on October 2017. So this interview happened two months prior to the New York Times article. Today is October 29, 2017, and I'm so happy to have Robert Powell again in the show after our August 2017 episode, where he told me for the first time that he had some insights into USS Nimitz case. And uh, let me just shortly introduce Robert 
To you, he has a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry. He has 28 years in engineering management in the semiconductor field from 1978 to 2006, while working at Advanced Micro Devices, which is a semiconductor company, I think in California, he has taken numerous internal courses related to uh, design, experiments, statistical analysis. He helped uh, Advanced Micro Devices develop its first flash memory technology, which was really interesting for me to read, and which is used today in flashcards for cameras, uh, computers, and so on. His experience includes uh, managing a state-of-the-art chemistry laboratory and managing a research and development group. So really a great resume and he has also been the director of research at MUFON and he also was a head of MUFON Science Review Board and now he has a new organization. So was that overview of your bio fair, Robert? Uh, you did a great job, Giuliano. That was a, a good summary. Yeah, great. Uh, so I, I guess audience will, will see that uh, you are really credible. Uh, you have a lot of respect in the field. And last time we also talked about your book that you co-authored, uh, UFOs and Government, A Historical Inquiry. Uh, I can point our listeners to listen to that episode if they missed it. And uh, from my point of view, it's the best uh, book about the phenomena that was ever written. Of course, that was my uh, personal opinion. Anyway, I, I summoned Robert today to talk about uh, a really important case that uh, I'm really fascinated with. And everything uh, started on October 11, 2017, by the Tom DeLong's uh, conference, where he assembled uh, government insiders. Of course, uh, Tom DeLong is a former member of the popular rock group uh, Blink-182, and he has a UFO interest uh, for a long time, and his initiative goes under the umbrella of the organization that he formed, and it is called to the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences. And on that web conference, a uh, very important uh, case, the USS Nimitz UFO incident from November 2004, was mentioned and presented there by Christopher Mellon. And Christopher Mellon is an intelligence expert, and he was serving in Clinton and Bush administrations. He worked uh, many years on Capitol Hill, including also as the Minority Staff Director of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. However, there is some connection between him and Robert, because uh, Robert is also part of the very important team, which is called UFO Data, and uh, Christopher Mellon is also a member there. So maybe, uh, Robert, uh, you could introduce uh, Christopher Mellon in the beginning, and your professional relationship with him, and then we can move to the case itself. Sure, it's good to be on your show again, Giuliani. I always enjoy talking to you. Um, the, the case that you're, uh, referring to and Chris Mellon, I've known Chris, I guess about two years to three years, uh, mostly either phone conversations or emails. I have not had an opportunity to talk to him in person. Um, Chris is, uh, worked in the State Department, um, I guess about a dozen years ago. Uh, and he has an interest in the UFO phenomenon that's fairly similar to mine. He's, he's fairly conservative on the topic. Uh, so he basically tries to deal with facts whenever possible. Um, Chris is also a member of UFO Data, which was started up by Mark Rodiger and uh, Alex Went uh, from the University of Ohio. Uh, and that's basically a project to develop a camera system using uh, gratings on the lens so that you can get a spectra of the object when you photograph it. And so basically you will have a digital photograph with a spectra embedded onto the digital photograph. Um, the idea being to set up real-time uh, systems that are connected on the Internet 
that would uh, basically be similar to what you've seen on all sky camera systems uh, that look for meteors. So this system would be similar to that. And um, without going into the details of how, you know, where we're at on developing it, Chris is, is part of that uh, program. And that's um, one area where I'm familiar with Chris. And I also had talked to Chris when I uh, was the director of research at MUFON. We had talked a few times. And I've also talked to him two to three times regarding uh, the case uh, from November 14th, 2004, that involved the USS Nimitz, a number of F-18s, the USS Princeton, and also uh, an AWACS type of aircraft called an E-2, which is what the Navy uses. Yeah, and I think uh, I heard you, you mentioned once that at the time uh, his knowledge of this case was sort of not too deep. So I guess uh, somewhere from the point when you talked with him and later to the date of this conference, so somewhere in between, it seems uh, he learned a lot about uh, the USS Nimitz case. Yes, that, that is correct. Uh, I talked to Chris probably... Oh, four to six months ago, briefly regarding this case, he, he was aware that this had happened, but he did not. And he had a few details on it, but nowhere near the amount of details as he gave in the presentation. Um, so somewhere from when I talked to him six months ago and today, he has, you know, obtained a lot more information on the case. And I suspect it's probably from one of the other gentlemen that was on the panel. Yeah, and during the Tom DeLong's conference, he also stated, I have met with one of the pilots and confirmed the account, as have the other members of To The Stars Academy team. It is obviously a highly prominent case, and you mentioned to me that case back in August, as I already said. So you were also working on it behind the radar, I guess, for some time. So it will be great now to go into the overview uh, and to see the importance, the technical details of it. So maybe if you could give us an overview of all the components that were involved in this uh, incident. Okay, so let me... Uh let me start chronologically. Um, I first heard of the case from a friend, um, and that was in the middle of the year 2016. And he basically uh, gave me a summary of what occurred, uh, which I, I will uh, repeat that to your listeners now. Um, there was a exercise of the Carrier Attack Group 11, which includes the Nimitz, uh, the USS Princeton, which is a, uh, a guided missile carrier, um, the USS Louisville, which is a submarine, and a number of other surface ships. So it's standard naval exercises that were going on. Well, apparently the USS Princeton, for a number of days, had been detecting on its radar an object that would move from roughly 80,000 feet altitude down to near the surface of the ocean in just a matter of seconds. And on November 14th, they decided to dispatch two F-18s uh, into the area. And actually, first they dispatched a Marine F-18, a regular Marine Hornet. And so the Marine uh, pilot flew to the area. They gave him the coordinates from the USS Princeton. And as he was flying to the area, he got another call from the Princeton uh, requesting that he break off because two Navy F-18 Super Hornets were en route to that target. So while he was still in the area, he continued just for a short period of time since he was there. And he describes seeing uh, on the ocean surface that the... First, he says the ocean was just crystal clear that day, almost re very reflective. And as he approached these coordinates, he could see a large, uh, a lot of turmoil in the water 
similar to what he thought a sinking ship would look like if a ship had been sunk. Mm. And then he broke off because those were his orders and, and left. So that was what that was all the Marine pilots saw. The two F-18 pilots, one of whom was the commander of the entire F-18 squadron on the Nimitz, um, were flying to the coordinates. The Nimitz, um, excuse me, not the Nimitz, but the Princeton asked the lead pilot if they had anything on radar. He did not have anything on radar. He, he continued to the coordinates, but then he had a visual, what he called uh these unknown objects in the air that he described as a tic-tac. And a tic-tac, I don't know how, you know, if everyone knows what a tic-tac looks like, but it's a type of candy back in the 1990s and early 2000s. It was very popular. It came in a little glass container. It's basically white, and it's oval, and it's an elongated oval. So similar to a stretched-out oval. So the pilot describes... An oval-shaped object, no wings, no uh, obvious method of propulsion. And as he's approaching, the tic-tac turns its nose towards him and began to move towards the jet. So one of the F-18s flew to a higher altitude, and then the lead pilot engaged the tic-tac. And what he was trying to do was get behind the tic-tac. And so he, he used typical maneuvers, which I'm not familiar with, but it's, I guess, how jets try to get behind another jet. And he never had any success. As a matter of fact, the Tic Tac got behind his jet. And um, after a while, the Tic Tac left the area. Uh, the pilot described it as several uh, Mach speed. And so a Mach mm-hmm. is roughly 750 miles per hour. So several Mach means two, three thousand miles an hour or faster. Hmm. Uh, so that the F-18s were not able to pursue them, and they headed back to the Nimitz. Well, on the way back to the Nimitz, the Princeton radioed the pilot again. Yeah, and that is the most intriguing point, as they were informed that Tic Tac is actually now at their rendezvous point. And the uh, the pilot said, well, I'm running low on fuel. So he continued to the Nimitz. He landed. And then two more F-18s took off. And, you know, these two pot sets of pilots kind of let them know what they'd seen. And my understanding is that the two F-18s, the second pair, actually mm-hmm. obtained an IR video of these uh, tic-tac objects. Um and apparently, after, you know, I guess engaging them again, similar to the first two F-18s, um, these F-18s revert, uh, return to the Nimitz. And, and that's pretty much the, uh, the end of the story. Okay, so that was this friend of mine told me that story, and he's very reputable. So mm-hmm. I, I took that as, you know, okay, that's likely, likely. And then he told me something. He said, he said, Robert, I can't really tell you about other details I know of the case, but I can tell you that the case has been leaked to the Internet. And I said, really? And he said, he said, yes. And he said, just search on Nimitz F-18 in Princeton and you'll probably find the case. So that's what I proceeded to do. And what I found was a blog on a Navy blog site that talked about this incident. Yeah, fighter um, sweep. So what, pardon? Uh, fighter sweep. Blog. Right, yeah. fighter sweep is the name of the blog. So what? It, what? That strengthened the case to me because it wasn't on a UFO site. It was on a Navy blog site, and I went and looked at other blogs that this Navy pilot had written. None of them were about UFOs. This is the only one he wrote about UFOs. So that added to the credibility there also. Yes. Um, And he spends the first several paragraphs. He begins his story by saying, uh, (laughs) you know, this is kind of like the X-Files and this is going to be hard to believe. So I'm going to spend my first few paragraphs telling you how worthy this pilot was that told me the story. And this pilot was a friend of his. And the entire blog's just full of naval terms. 
So it took me a while to look up all the naval terms so that I understood exactly what I was reading. So once I had verified that and I checked for any other indications of this on the Internet, and I did find uh, what's called a Navy summary log that mentioned this, and this was also leaked to the Internet on a website called Above Top Secret. Yes. And also on that site, um, there was mention of, and this is also discussed in the Fighter Sweep article, that there was an, a video that was leaked to the Internet and then was subsequently removed. And uh, someone was able to actually take, uh, get that video by using the Wayback Machine. So the original posting was obtained. And the Wayback Machine, for your listeners, it's just a system that goes out and constantly copies what's on the Internet. So you can actually go back and look at various websites and see what was on them at various points in time of the past. Yeah, the, the address is archive.org. So it's a great service for the history of the Internet. Right. So once I had all that information, I said, okay, I'm going to send out uh, FOIA requests uh, to the Navy. And I sent out nine different FOIA requests in December of 2016, requesting information on the four Navy F-18s, the Marine F-18, the USS Nimitz, the USS Princeton, and the E-2, which was the airborne uh, AWAC type of aircraft, which basically it's a, an electronics listening aircraft that also has a sophisticated radar, etc. Uh, as of April of this year, 2017, I received responses on all but one of my nine uh, FOIA requests. Now, FOIA is a Freedom of Information Act request, and in the United States, um, any government agency is supposed to provide anyone in the public information on an incident as long as it's not classified. So in all nine cases, the response I received was, we have no information responsive to your request, which basically is saying they, they don't have any information. So I appealed one of my stronger nine Freedom of Information Act requests. And when you appeal it, the appeal actually goes back to the Navy. So it's kind of like the fox that guards the uh, chicken house. Uh, so it goes back to the same agency that first, you know, said they have no information. There is one difference in that it goes to uh, the Navy JAG group, which is basically their the Navy's kind of uh, judicial and, and attorneys that uh, oversee the Navy. Oh, oh, yeah. And we in Europe particularly uh, know that because of the very popular TV series JAG that represents. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Same guys. Yeah. And so these guys are these these are officers who, when they leave the Navy, will go in into law firms. Mm. So on the first appeal, they denied my appeal and they said uh, the Navy. Uh, basically did what was required to search for the records and they could find that. And in it, they quoted various federal court cases, which said that it's not required for a government agency to look everywhere possible to get documents. As long as they make a reasonable attempt, that is sufficient. So, mm. I received that, so no no luck there. So I sent a second appeal on, what, on another good case. Um, freedom of when I say good case, I mean another one of my FOIAs that I sent yeah. that I thought was one of the stronger ones. And this one was a FOIA that had gone to the Marines. And so I received an email back that said they would review it, and I noticed on the email. It was the same JAG officers that had looked at my first appeal. <laughs> so I sent them a letter 
and or an email back and I said, I'm aware of your first argument as to why this was not you you know why you would not um, reverse the decision and, and I said, but in this case, we have got multiple requests on five different Navy assets. In other words, the USS Princeton, the USS Nimitz, four Navy F-18s, a Marine F-18, and a Navy AWACS aircraft, the, the E-2, uh, called the Hawkeye. And so I said, you may, I said, a federal court judge might or might not consider it reasonable that you can't find any information on any of five naval assets. But I said, I don't know that our congressman will find it reasonable. And so I, <laughs> yeah. I copied my congressman on this appeal request and asked for their support. So was that time, uh, John McCain office? Yes. John oh, McCain okay. was one of the, uh, people that I copied. Now, I don't know if he supported my appeal in any way, but just the act of me copying him, I think probably, yes. <laughs> you know, helped the Navy say, okay, let's, let's give this guy something, right? So they didn't give me the documents, but they did give me something. So what they sent me was, uh, because in my appeal, I told them, I, I want evidence that you guys actually did some work here and actually went and, you know, searched and you and that you found some logs if you couldn't find the logs I'm asking for. Right. So they come back and they sent me some email communications that they had had with some of the Navy and Marine officers. So this is basically emails where JAG officers are sending a request to Navy and Marine officers saying, you know, here's the request. Can you guys see if you can find anything? And one of the most interesting ones came back from a Marine lieutenant colonel. And so the JAG uh, officer who was a captain asked him, you know, about uh, the case. Right. And I had the I actually attached what you saw on flight sweep. I attached attached that entire document and the other document I had as evidence, you know, that something did happen. So the Marine Lieutenant Colonel replies back, Tic Tacs? Oh, yes, I know about the Tic Tacs. <laughs> and then he says, he says, uh, a number of officers on, on board all have seen the video of the Tic Tacs. So he confirmed oh, mm -hmm. uh, basically that this happened. And then a Marine major in his response said, uh, we don't have those documents here because it happened 14 years ago, but I'm sure you could get a point of contact that could find those documents in the archives. So now I have a second guy that's saying not only did this occur, but that the document should exist in the archives. So there's no doubt in my mind this happened and that the documents are out there. Yeah, and you have now considerable progress too, and also besides the fighter sweep article, now we have actually multiple sources that are confirming this, and I also think there is no doubt anymore. The only issue is some sort of a technical details that should be filled still, and uh, uh, so it's an amazing development uh, actually that you got with that second appeal. Uh, what is the current state of your appeals, and where do you go from here? Well, my next step is, and I will probably be doing that this coming week, is I will appeal this last appeal. In other words, when they sent me the emails, uh, that have the statements from the lieutenant colonel and the major, but they still have not provided me the documents. So in this appeal, I will point out the major statement, which was there should be a point of contact so that those documents can be obtained from the archives. So I'm going to argue that that evidence, plus the fact that the lieutenant colonel, uh, his testimony, testimony indicated this occurred. So my Two main points of attack are, one, it appears those article, 
you know, the information should be in your archives. And two, the, apparently this event occurred. So how could how could you lose or misplace any documents on a, an event of such a nature? So that, those will be my two major arguments. And uh, am I correct that in these emails you also got the names of the officers that were involved in the incident? Yes. Uh, th this is kind of interesting. And, <laughs> and this is why it's good to send lots of Freedom of Information requests to a lot of different uh, places. Because in any government bureaucracy, whether it's uh, the civilian bureaucracy or the military bureaucracy, uh, some not everyone does things the same way, right? And people make mistakes. Sure. So I received a... Uh, After I received this this last uh, statement from the Navy JAG guys that said, you know, here's some emails. One of the Marine officers who was one of the Freedom of one of the FOIA officers that I had been dealing with mm. on on this same case that the JAG officers had already replied. I guess he did not know that they had replied, so he also replied. But then in his reply, he had not redacted the names of all the officers, oh, okay. which the Navy had. And this is the funny thing. <laughs> Have you ever gotten those emails where someone says, you know, Robert would like to recall the email he just sent you? <laughs> well, <laughs> this Marine officer sends me that, you know, Captain so-and-so would like to recall the email he just sent you. And I'm just like, now, why would I want to let you recall that email? So... So that's how I got the names of I'd already had a name of a few officers and that gave me the names of more. So, yes, now I have the names of nine different uh, Marine and Naval officers who either were involved in the incident, you know, the, which I have the names of um, two of the pilots involved or three of the pilots involved and then six individuals who have were on board and had seen the video after all of this occurred. Yeah, I think this is really outstanding development and quite possibly a game changer. From one perspective, I guess we can speculate there are definitely some implications of classification. And of course, we are dealing with military here and it's a relatively recent case, 2004. But uh, from another perspective, I mean, we have an article which is uh, uh, present on the professional aeronautics blog where the pilots are writing articles about their experiences and so on. So obviously they wanted to share this really uh, extraordinary case from that professional perspective. But again, if there was any attempt to contact those pilots, I guess it's really hard to evaluate how they would react. Have you maybe tried to go into that direction, possibly? Yes, that's that's actually on my list to do, is to uh, to call some of the uh, pilot. I have the, a number of one of the pilots who's still in the service. So I, I don't know, you know, what his reaction will be or what he may say, but I'm going to contact uh, one of the pilots, you know, who's an active serviceman. And I guess we also have information from another front. Uh, investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell is working on this case for some time too, uh, which is also important to follow. And you know, when you told me about this case in our previous interview, I did a basic search afterwards and I found uh, that about top secret forum thread, thanks to your hints. And I also used archive.org to recover the FLIR video. And then, since I'm tracking a lot of media interviews about this topic, I discovered Coast to Coast episode with Jeremy Corbell from May 2017. And I think I finally heard it a few months later. Uh, he was speaking there about one case, although not so explicitly, so he was still keeping his sources but I could immediately recognize it's actually the Nimitz case. And on October 11th, we had Tom DeLong's web conference and Nimitz case again. So I was exposed to this case three times in the relatively short time. 
And thanks to all these leads, uh, I finally sat down. I read the fighter sweep article in detail, I took notes, drew a map, researched the military jargon, acronyms, and then it finally hit me. This case has such implications, it is so important, and this could be the case of the decade. I mean, we have visual confirmation of anomalous object, radar detection, engagements from multiple airplanes, uh, so variety of details and aspects of the phenomena and in the end I was so blown away and I said this is really something outstanding and this case could break everything what we knew so far because it directly confronts the closure of the project blue book it confronts the condon committee conclusions I mean after all this effort of the condon committee we again have this prominent and such recent case and obviously up to this time military is still dealing with this hot potato problem and we are back in the beginning i mean so many lost years yes it absolutely is and i think the military deals with it all the time it's just we don't hear about it anymore uh as a matter of fact the you know, the above top secret form, right? That those that discussion was happening in 2007. Yes. So only three years after the event occurred, someone leaked it onto above top secret. And it, I don't know who leaked it, but it was in 2015 that the friend of the lead pilot wrote in his naval blog about the case and that's the first time we have the detailed um kind of pilot description of what happened in that case do you intend to do any analysis of the FLIR video uh, there are a lot of discussions that i could see on different forums and facebook posts there are different conclusions out there and some people are emphasizing that the web space for this uh, leaked uh, FLIR video was placed on the website and I think that was a website of some students involved in video production. So I guess there was some suspicion there. Uh, however, even the skeptic Robert Schiffer has commented on Facebook. Uh, he stated that just because the video was on that website, it doesn't mean that it was created by those students. And he also stated that the folder where the video was located is called external, presumably for files obtained from elsewhere, end of quote. Another note, uh, investigative filmmaker Jeremy Corbell actually talked with one of the pilots who confirmed to him that video is authentic. So, do you intend to do uh, any analysis of the FLIR video? And I think that also your group has some experience with such FLIR evaluations. Yes, uh, the uh, SCU group will evaluate the video. Um, I personally have I've spent just some basic time looking at it. I've verified that that is the type of FLIR video the F-18s used at that point in time. But actually, Giuliano, for me, the most the strongest port of pieces of information is what that uh, pilot, um, Paco, uh, I can't recall his last name, Chiani or Chichiani, uh, the guy who wrote in the blog. That, to me, is the strongest evidence of all, along with the fact that this lieutenant colonel and major uh, confirmed in the emails that I received that this event occurred. So my view is I'm, I'm confident this event happened. I'm going to spend my time trying to get more Navy information and push that as hard as I can. So that's kind of, um, where, what I see is the most important right now. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more there with you, Robert. I think video is just an additional material. Uh, I have seen a lot of debates where people are hoping uh, that if they could prove the video one way or the other, that will somehow move the case into different direction. But again, I completely agree uh, with you. Actually, the main core of the case is Paco Chiariki's article, 
we have names there, the date. I mean, oh my God, even to have the date, it's an amazing fact already. Uh, we have detailed chronology, uh, technical aspects, and now even with your FOIA emails, we have again additional confirmation. So I think that's actually the core. Uh, anything else is potentially additional bonus that in time could be or not be used. So I can't thank you enough, Robert, that you actually detected this case, that you worked on it, and I think it could have historical significance uh, for the future. Uh, maybe for the end, uh, we could uh, talk about your organization now. You recently had an announcement and we can wrap up the conversation with that. Uh, yes, myself and several other individuals created a new organization called the Scientific Coalition for Ufology. And the basic goal is to use... Uh, to have a group, and so it's invitation-only type of group, where everyone in the organization either has a science background or has an investigative background out of either the military or law enforcement. So, for example, yourself would be, you would be an excellent uh, person to be part of this organization. Um, so anyone who's interested, and we've had several people already who've sent us uh, request as to what's required, um, you know, can send an email to our uh, website, which is um, explorescu.org. Um, so www.explorescu.org. Oh. And there's also an article on Open Minds Forum uh, where Alejandro Rojas does a good description um, you know, describing the organization and what we're doing. Currently, we have about 25 people in the organization. That's so great. And I guess when you will be done with this case, you will also present it in some sort of a peer review article in the future, probably, right? Yes, that is correct. And that's one of the things we want to do with this organization is to do peer reviews of of various cases, or if someone, for example, let's say someone else uh, writes up a report uh, on this case, we're glad to do a peer review of the report they uh, wrote. I'll definitely continue to follow up this case. I think uh, it will be really interesting time ahead. And this is such a gift that we have this case, such a recent case now in public domain. And I really think this could change some uh, views of, of the phenomena in the future definitely and so I guess it will be really interesting and I will direct people to follow your website I will put the, in the description the links and your announcements so probably we'll learn more about it in the future well thank you very much Juliana for uh, talking to me today thanks so much Robert Thank you.